let us begin in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, welcome to another edition of Seeds of Truth. This is your host, Joe Holcraft, coming to you from KKXX Studios, Chica Life Radio 104.5 FM and AM 930. It is great to be with you another Wednesday evening where we continue our reflections into the richness of the Lord's Prayer, this prayer that comes to us in the heart of the Sermon on the Mount, right? So, and really the heart of the proclamation of what it means to live in God. So, yeah, it is very much fitting that our Lord would show us how to pray uh, in the middle of His Sermon that talks about how we ought to live. So we have been at this now for quite some time. In point of fact, we find ourselves in the last petition, huh? Deliver us from evil. So that will be our primary subject matter for this evening. But before we get into this last petition, I do want to continue to uh, thank all of you out there who continue to take 25 to 30 minutes out of your busy schedules to join me here in the friendly confines of Chico, California, in this radio program, Seeds of Truth, where we really do our best to try to uh, teach the Catholic faith um, in its many settings. I know you have so many questions out there, and uh, you send me your questions, your observations, your comments, all of them, and, and I do appreciate that. And I, and I especially want to thank those out there um, who are tuning in by way of podcast outside of uh, this area, this Northern California area, um, just not in uh, the United States of America, but also beyond in the countries of Brazil, Argentina, Chile, uh, Canada, Mexico, um, Paraguay, I see, um, Italy, France, Germany, Spain, and some countries in Africa. I, I really do welcome all of you um, into this studio. What an honor and what a privilege it continues to be from one week to the next to really journey with you in this great thing we call the Catholic faith, the Christian and Catholic faith. So with that, um, we are in this last petition, deliver us from evil. You know, this phrase, deliver us from evil, is a, a somewhat misleading translation. In the Greek of the New Testament, there is a definite article before the word evil. So Jesus actually commanded us to pray for deliverance from the evil, or maybe even more precisely, the evil one. Now, this brings us back to a discussion we've had in the past as it relates to reflection we had um, in the temptation narrative, huh? When in uh, Matthew 4.2, just a few chapters previous to the Lord's Prayer, Matthew pens, approaching the tempter, said to him, now what's going on there? And how might it help us understand what's going on in the Lord's Prayer? Well, to show the essence of a person, both Greek and Hebrew often use what we call a verbal participle to construct a noun with the definitive article, okay? So the result grammatically is that the attribute is applied absolutely to the person in question. Thus, the liturgy habitually refers to God as who? But the one having mercy. And we read of Our Lady's personal title in Luke one twenty eight as the one who has been graced. You know, the, the sacred name of God can be best defined as 
the one who is being? Well, in Matthew 4, 2, the passage reads best as it relates to Satan, the one who is tempting. You see, the tempter par excellence is he who places obstacles on one's path to God. It could be said, it is the law of being that one thing must influence another according to its own nature, right? And disposition. I mean, if God is substantial charity, if God is substantial love, then all he can give is what? Love, right? But if the devil is one who is tempting, then he becomes the principle of contradiction and negation, of course, to the one who is love. So when we pray, deliver us from evil, we are really praying, deliver us from the evil one, deliver us from the one who by definition is tempting us 24-7-365. So it is right that we pray this in this great prayer, deliver us from the evil one. And my dear friends, this makes a difference, huh? And a, and a rather large one at that, you know, for there's only one evil, and that is sin. Now, this is not to be dismissive, of course, of other sufferings, uh, loneliness, rejection, grief, um, cancer, physical debility, mental illness, so on and so forth. All of these can be obviously horrific trials. But let us be clear on something. They cannot defeat us if we remain strong with God's own strength, you see. Even if disease or murder should take our lives, we will not die. Indeed, we will never die as long as we keep faith, as long as we pray this prayer, Lord, deliver us from the evil one. The only thing we really need to be delivered from is not trial, temptation, and suffering, or even the grave. The only real enemy is sin. Sin. Because sin equals death, right? Now, all sin traces its ancestry to the sin of Satan, the fallen prince of angels. Before Adam and Eve faced him in the garden, he had already made his vain refusal to serve God, right? enticing a third of heaven's angels to follow him in rebellion. Ever after, we know he has raged in vain warfare against God and all his works. He tempted our first parents and so cooperated in bringing the curse of death upon the world. And he has never ceased perpetrating lies and murder against God's children. What is the verse we pray during nightly prayer that comes to us from 1 Peter 5, verse 8? For those of you who, who pray the divine office nightly prayer each night, your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. You see, my friends, the devil lives to oppose God's will. He tempts us at every turn so that we might follow him in rebellion, right? Now, we know God does not will that anyone should ever sin. We don't have to look long or far to see that the devil succeeds often in temptation. Uh, perhaps he also succeeds often in the final devouring of souls. Yet, what we also know, what sacred scripture reveals to us, is that his work is futile. 
What do we mean by this? Well, for God, because he is omnipotent, we know his will will be accomplished, right? What does St. Augustine say? Huh? Almighty God would never allow any evil whatsoever to exist in his works if he were not so all-powerful and good as to cause good to emerge from evil itself. Did we not talk about this a few weeks ago? Even the greatest evil in history, the torture and murder of God's only son. What does the catechism remind us? Brought about the greatest of goods, the glorification of Christ and our redemption. That's paragraph 312. In the words of St. Paul, (laughs) where sin increased, grace abounds all the more. Now, I have spoken to that passage on more than one occasion, Romans 5, verse 20, and I want to read this passage and put it maybe into a little more context to appreciate our point here. Law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Okay, so what's going on there? What does Paul intend to mean when he says to increase the trespass? Well, the Torah, the law of God, aggravated the problem of sin because it defined the boundaries of wrongdoing, right? But it could not restrain Israel from crossing them. The purpose was to induce Israel to acknowledge its weakness and cry out for divine help, right? In the words of St. Augustine, the law was given that grace might be sought. Grace was given that the law might be kept. Huh? And what do we intend to mean when we use the word law as it relates to sacred scripture? Well, again, the Hebrew word for law, yara, speaks to, but in archery term, it best translates bullseye. When you strike bullseye, what are you striking? The center. Well, when you're living according to the law of God, you are living in the center of God, in God's very heart, if you will. This is why the Hebrew and Greek translation of sin literally means to miss the mark, right? To miss the mark. Once again, in archery term, if you are not living according to the law of God, your dart isn't even hitting the board, okay? Not to reduce sin to archery, but really it highlights how sin is about relationship, living in the heart of God, and that in the end, sin can be best defined as just not disobedience, but breaking the Father's heart, because we are not living in His heart as we were intended to do. Okay, so all very important as we are talking about this last uh, petition, deliver us from evil. So, (laughs) the devil's works then are worse than futile. They are self-defeating, for when we struggle against his temptations, we grow stronger in what? Virtue and we gain divine life through grace. Even if we succumb to his empty promises, but then return to God in sorrow, we grow stronger still. This is something we ought to rejoice in, my friends. And as long as we remain united to Christ, we need fear nothing from our trials. What are we speaking to here? Well, in the end, trials, they can work to our benefit. We just need to open our heart to God and let God invade our souls. My dear friends, for each and every one of us, we have those one or two things that we are most attached to that we struggle with the most. Identify what they are and let God perform His surgery, huh? 
Let him do his work. Let him show off. Let him show you how great he really is. Satan says, he's not so great. He can't do this. He can't do that. No, he can. We just need to allow God to do what he does best. Heal us and draw us into his infinite ocean of mercy. Okay, I'm looking down at the quote here that comes to us from Scott Hahn. And, and again, we're working through Scott Hahn's work, Understanding Our Father and, and his reflections and his bullet points and just kind of commenting from there. He's got a quote here from John Paul II, a general audience, where John Paul II says, Satan cannot block the construction of the kingdom of God. Indeed, we can say with St. Paul that the work of the evil one cooperates for the good and that it helps to build up the glory of the chosen ones. You know, the scriptures give us proof positive in the book of Job of the very thing we are talking about now, huh? I mean, the devil afflicts Job with disease and poverty, and he brutally takes the lives of Job's children and his livestock. But Job remains steadfast in his faith and in God's goodness. And through the ordeal, Job grows in wisdom, and he proves his love for God when such love seems, by a purely human standard, most difficult to live by. Now, I have spoken to Job a great number of times, and what I have often said is that it's not so much the patience of Job that we can learn from, but the impatience of Job. Why? Because again, he is an orator. He inquires. He asks questions. God never really answers his questions. He's only satisfied until he's in God's presence. Yet, yet, there is this element of patient endurance in the story of Job. So we are to understand Job, yes, in light of his patience, okay, to a degree, but also his impatience in the context of him being so persistent with his questions and his questions not getting answered. And the point it illuminates is that in the end, we are only satisfied until our answer isn't so much a response to a question per se, as much as it is the answer, capital A, God himself. This is when Job is truly satisfied. So there's kind of two levels to this, if you will, when it comes to the story of Job. So in the end, Job is holier, wiser, and even richer than he had ever been before, and so he is happier. Now, there's a provocative question here. Who gets the credit, right? (laughs) Should we give the devil his due? I mean, if you think about it, except for God Almighty, no one worked harder to bring holiness to Job than did the devil. The problem is, (laughs) no one wanted it less. You see, a paradox, if you will. My dear friends, the evil one works no differently in your life than in Job's. No one is working harder for your holiness than the devil. But no one wants it less, you see. His work in an individual life is always a gamble, if you will. If he succeeds in tempting us to despair or, or to commit mortal sins, we consent to our own true death, the death of our soul. But if we, like Job, and we can say maybe more so like Jesus, cling to our Father who art in heaven, rejecting Satan and all his, his works and all his pompous promises, we too, like Job, 
will be holier, wiser, and uh, richer in the end. Again, this does not mean we should seek to do individual combat with the devil. I mean, he is an angel of the highest order with a supreme intelligence, a point we have highlighted again on more than one occasion. Intelligence that is far superior to the combined intelligence of all humanity. Don't be fools. On our own, we do not have the strength to defeat him. And indeed, he has been the downfall of many exalted minds and souls throughout history. So we pray for deliverance from Satan because we know that we cannot defeat him in a game of, say, one-on-one. I mean, I don't know about you out there, but I like one-on-one competition. If it's not ping-pong, it's a game of basketball. One-on-one, I very much enjoy. I I like the competitive aspect of it. Not that I don't like team sports because those are fun as well. But there's something about the one-on-one, you know, tennis as well. But don't be fooled. Don't go one-on-one with Satan. You see, that is a game we can only win by going two-on-one, right? You and Jesus against the devil. Then you will win. Then you will win. And this is the whole point of this prayer, that we are drawn into communion with Christ and the very inner life of the Trinity. Because if this is about spiritual combat, it is never about the one-on-one, huh? but the two-on-one. Jesus Christ gives us the advantage and allow him in your life so that you might actually have the advantage. So, in the light of that, (laughs) we gladly pray the prayer of one who might be called the weakling, because for that is what we are. (laughs) Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. My dear friends, we are called to be weak, dependent upon Christ. And it is not until we understand that truth that we will truly gain the advantage. Scott Hahn here has um, a quote from St. Cyprian. When we have once asked for God's protection against evil and have obtained it, then we stand secure and safe against everything which the devil and the world work against us. For what fear does a man have in this life if his guardian in this life is God himself. And as we know, he is not merely our guardian, but as this whole prayer kicked off with, he is our father. Now, what can we say about this great doxology? The kingdom, the power, and the glory. You know, the prayer, our father, is a prayer full of hope, huh? that confident assurance of what is yet unseen. Indeed, for some of us, what is hopeful might sound audacious. And here, my friends, we turn our attention to the Mass of Pope Paul VI and the Lord's Prayer there. If you were to translate the Latin of this Mass, it reads, Admonished by saving precepts and formed by divine instruction, we dare to say, our Father, who art in heaven, so on and so forth. Now, the English translation says this, let us pray with confidence to the Father in the words our Savior gave us, our Father, who art in heaven, so on and so forth. What are we to see here? Well, that our prayer 
is confident and daring, right? And daring because our hope is what? Supernatural. <laughs> Supernatural. Surpassing anything that might limit our, our expectation of fulfillment, we could say. Remember, God is almighty, so he can deliver us as we pray. Deliver us from evil. God is our loving Father, so He wants to show us His love. So we approach Him with confidence. We speak to Him with the fearlessness of small children before their daddy, or maybe like one friend to another. You know, someone came up to me last week and they had questions about prayer and and, and intercession, and they said, You know, Joe. There's one friend in particular that I have that as I've gotten to know him, he just prays a lot. And when I give him something to pray for, it often comes to fruition. It's as if he really means what he says when he tells me that he prays for me. (laughs) And so I bring up this story because this gentleman who came up to me says, I go to this friend with great confidence. And isn't that great that we might have such confidence in our friends. I mean, this is a good thing. Now, we have to understand that our friends are human and they will fall. And certainly this is why we rely totally and entirely on God himself. But it's not a bad thing to have those kind of friends. In fact, it's a very good thing. What does the psalmist say? How sweet it is when brothers dwell in unity. Huh? When brothers pray for one another, heartfelt prayer, earnest prayer, truly sweet that kind of prayer is. So we turn to God with great confidence. And uh, also, it would be worthy of noting, as I have, um, it is good to have a friend that we turn to with great confidence. And to some extent, to that friend who we have confidence in, that might act like a prism, if you will, and to even all the more confidence we ought to have in God, right? (laughs) So, all that being said, you know, to the unbeliever or the wavering believer, we could say, this hope we talk about, it it might seem or sound too ambitious, yet we must understand it as the very foundation of our Christian life, our spirituality, and who we are before God as we desire to go deeper. Remember that when you talk about the spiritual life, We must always put in the context of desire, seeking, wanting, aching, because that's what the spiritual life is all about. Brothers and sisters, we are children at play in the courts of our Father, the mighty King. We are, as so many theologians have said it, sons in the one great Son. We share in the life of the Trinity. We are God's children. If the technical phrase of divine filiation is the stuff of our life in Christ, then let us live in that kind of filiation and understand that hope is the substance of the good news we have to tell the world each and every day. What is Peter say to us, 1 Peter 3.15, in that great verse, to make a defense to anyone who calls you to account for the hope that is in you, always be prepared. Always be prepared to give an account for the hope, right? The hope that is inside of you. 
the hope of what is yet to come, the hope of what you already share in. And what is the reason for our hope, our confidence, our, our audacity? Well, the most ancient liturgical texts of the Lord's Prayer make the reasons clear in a prayerful postscript that the church calls the great doxology, literally, word of glory. Why do we dare to pray the Our Father? Well, the answer begins with a very simple word, for. A conjunction, right? A conjunction that means because or since. For <laughs> the kingdom, the power, and the glory are yours now and forever. You know, most Catholics in, in the West know this doxology from the Mass and also from, and from devotional prayers. But it's interesting, this doxology in its totality is missing from the earliest manuscripts of the New Testament. However, and it's important to know this, we do find it in the Didache, right? The, the teaching of the Twelve Apostles, a, a manual of instruction, which many scholars have it dated between 60 to 90 AD. It is significant that as we talk about this, specific to the doxology, it was very much present in the mass of the ancient church. And does not the mass itself sum up the reasons for the hope of Christians then and now? Why do we pray with confidence? Because we know God is almighty, right? We can pray that his name will be holy because we know that his name is holy from all eternity. We can pray for the coming of his kingdom because we know that his kingdom is already here. We talked about that a great deal. Already here within each and every one of us. We can pray with assurance that his will be done because we know his will is inexorable in spite of our free choices against him. Brothers and sisters, as we wrap up our reflection with this petition and doxology, and we'll sum up the whole of the Our Father next week, what I want us to appreciate is how God writes straight with crooked lines. And how we are made to see that even our worst sins can be a means to become a saint. Now, that's something exciting. That's something worth living for. So let us pray this great prayer, and especially this last petition in doxology, with a renewed sense of vigor that indeed we know God wins in the end, and it is about time we start sharing in that victory, both living in God and for other. We pray, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. All glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen, and God bless you. Thanks for listening to Seeds of Truth, heard every evening, Monday through Friday at 5.30 here on KKXX. If you'd like to hear this program or find out how you can help support Seeds of Truth, the website is joeholcraft.org.